Welcome to IEQ Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry. Yes, the rules have changed. Good day, wherever you're listening from, and welcome to Indoor Air Quality Radio, IAQ Radio, for Friday, April 17th, 2009. My name is Cliff Slotnick, known as the Z-Man. Radio Joe Hughes will be participating remotely from Studio C in Indian Lake, PA. Hey, Joe. Hello, Cliff. Good day. We've got our wingman, Chris Boisel, at the controls. Good afternoon. And guest hosting in the studio is Environmental Annie and Koalecki. Good afternoon. Okay, today's segments include the microband trivia question, an interview with our guest, Elliot Harrison, regulatory consultant. Uh, at halftime, we're going to have a message and some information from Brian McFarland with Legends Insurance. I will then resu- resume our interview. We'll do a roundup. Radio Joe and I, along with the wingman's help, have been working on the IAQRadio.com website each week, uh, adding information and a blog after every show. We've also changed the invitation and news announcement from IAQ Radio and IAQ Training Institute. We hope you like it. First, we'd like to thank our sponsors. Our newest advertiser is Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions. Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions is the leader in portable mobile PC-based indoor environmental monitors and reporting software. Check them out at wolfsensing.com. Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years at legends-enviro.com. Microband Systems, the microbial management company at microbandsystems.com. Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IEQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information available at ieconnections.com. Dry Ease Products, providing equipment for drying water-damaged homes and buildings. Dry Ease is first in drying solutions at dri-eaz.com. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop at jondon.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IQ Radio when you inquire about their products and services. In order to contact the show by phone, simply call 724-444-7444 and enter our show ID, which is 1547. Press 1 and join the show. You can also download the show by going to our website, www.iqradio.com, and following the link that says go to the show or you can get the show from iTunes. Don't forget that you can also get your IICRC Continuing Education Credits or IEQ Council Renewal Credits by emailing Radio Joe and requesting a quiz. Radio Joe's email is joe.use at 
iaqtraining.com. To make suggestions, special requests, or ask technical questions, you can either email Radio Joe or the Z-Man at cliffzlotnick at unsmoke.com. Last but not least, please visit the IAQ Training Institute website for the most current dates for the training you trust at iaqtraining.com. All right, sounds like we're ready for the microband trivia question. What do you think there, Chris? Congratulations go out to Paul Haas with Morse Zayner for answering his third correct microband trivia question, and a nice gift will be out to the mail soon. Uh, you'll win a cool prize by out-competing IAQ radio listeners and being the first person to correctly answer the microband trivia question. Submitting your answer is easy. Simply email it to cliffzlotnick at unsmoke.com. Now for the microband trivia question for Friday, April 17th, 2009. According to a poll taken by the Environmental Defense Fund, what book has most influenced environmental thinking? All right. Let's talk a little bit about today's guest. Today's guest is Elliot Harrison, who's a principal at Lewis & Harrison, a Washington, D.C.-based regulatory consulting firm. Mr. Harrison is a nationally recognized expert on chemical regulation, particularly the regulation of biocidal products by the U.S. EPA. These products include sterilants, disinfectants, sanitizers, and materials preservatives. Mr. Harrison assists companies on all aspects of biocide regulation, including preparing registration applications and amendments, interacting with government regulatory staff during the review process, regulatory policy issues, testing requirements, compliance issues, and compliance programs. In addition, Mr. Harrison assists companies on state regulatory submissions and issues. Mr. Harrison works with both chemical manufacturers and distributors. Mr. Harrison's educational background is in the fields of biology and chemistry. Good afternoon, Elliot. Welcome to IQ Radio. We've got some intro music for you. Okay, Elliot, I hope you like the music. Uh, it was a nice intro, Cliff. Glad right. to be here. Okay, well, I guess our first question is, is uh, what is FIFRA? What, what's that term stand for, FIFRA, F-I-F-R-A? FIFRA is the Federal Sexicide, Fungicide, and Rosanicide Act. Okay. It's the federal law or statute that basically governs pesticides. Okay, Elliot, what is a pest? Pest is defined in FIFRA and includes things like insects, plants, rodents, and microorganisms. Um, people sometimes, particularly people who don't work in this area, are not aware that you know, uh, disinfectants and sanitizers are regulated as pesticide products, no different than uh, an insecticide or, or a uh, uh, herbicide. So, Elliot, this is Joe. Um, 
so a pesticide is kind of like the generic term, and then there's these specific categories below that. Is that accurate? Well, uh, in a way. I mean, a, a pesticide is a material or a product intended for preventing, repelling, mitigating, killing a pest which would include an insect, a plant, uh, uh, a weed, a rodent, or a microorganism. Um, in, a, in, a, in addition, uh, uh, pesticide products also include things like plant growth regulators. And it's also important to note that uh, you don't have to kill to be a pesticide. Something that removes or mitigates is also considered a pesticide. But essentially, you're right. A pesticide is something that is intended to control a pest. Yeah, I, I thought, go ahead, Cliff. Go ahead. I guess going back to the to FIFRA, Elliot. You know, I think it goes way back, doesn't it, to like the '40s or something like that, FIFRA? Yeah, it was originally designed uh, to uh, basically protect growers. Right. And uh, it, it was um, uh, the regulatory. Uh, agency that administered FIFA was the Department of Agriculture. And they were amazingly, you know, their main interest was to ensure that uh, growers got products that were effective. Uh, it wasn't until really FIFA was transferred or the administrative authority was transferred from the USDA to EPA in 1970 that the focus changed from being uh, concerned really with uh, the efficacy of products, <clears throat> mainly agricultural products I'm talking about, in this sense, to safety and environmental effects. You know, I think one of the things that confuses the industry is this word fungicide is in that definition, and I think you pointed out uh, very accurately, in, you know, through history that this was originally fungicides that were going to be used on crops, not necessarily a fungicide that was going to be used to clean your bathroom or used to clean your kitchen. How's the EPA and antimicrobial branch organized, Elliot? Well, it's no longer the antimicrobials branch. It's now the antimicrobials division. Okay. Uh, for years, it was actually called the disinfectant uh, branch. <clears throat> and I think for a short time, it was the antimicrobials branch. Um, you know, getting back to the, the point that, that you made before, um, the program that administers FIFRA, the Office of Pesticide Program, was uh, uh, really focused on agricultural products and that, you know, the antimicrobials were always the, uh, the stepchild. Um, I think uh, beginning in the mid-'80s, early-'90s, the industry was demanding more from EPA in terms of resources, and because of that, and legislation that was passed in 1996, they set it up as a division. So antimicrobials now, uh, the, the, the group that uh, handles uh, the regulation of antimicrobials and the Office of Pesticide Programs is the Antimicrobials Division. It's a fully integrated division. So they do uh, not only the, the administrative work, but do the safety assessments, efficacy assessments for antimicrobials. In regards to uh, product registrations, I know there's a federal registration and state registrations, but I'd like to know, um, why is California so special? Uh, From California, a registration standpoint. 
is special because they have basically set up a, uh, a registration program that duplicates what EPA does. Um, again, I, I think the, uh, the, the primary focus was to protect growers because California is such a large agricultural state. I think with the environmental movement taking place, you know, in the beginning in the late 60s, 70s, and California sort of being in the forefront uh, of that, uh, they, they wanted to do their own assessments because they uh, were concerned that EPA was overlooking issues, environmental issues, worker safety issues that uh, were important to them. So in brief, they're, they're special or unique because they're the only state that basically duplicates what EPA does. So uh, a registrant not only has to, you know, go through the whole EPA process, the whole review process, but if they want to sell in California, they then have to basically go through the same thing in California. Okay. Elliot, we, we hear this other term thrown around quite a bit, and I haven't heard you use it yet except when we were talking before the show, that the biocide. Does EPA even use the term biocide? Well, it's not defined in FIFRA or the regulations. Um, I, I think it's, it's an undefined term that basically uh, I would do as the equivalent of an antimicrobial. Um, so there isn't – EPA has never defined it. Now, in Europe, they actually – uh, the, the, for their regulation of disinfectant sanitizers, they actually call it the Biocide Product Directive. So basically, biocides in Europe is equivalent to, you know, pesticide or antimicrobial pesticide in the U.S. But there, there is no, you won't find a definition that that EPA's official definition they've ever come up with or came out with for for biocides. Biocides. We just have definitions for what is it, antimicrobial, uh, sanitizer, and disinfectant? Well, no, they, they antimicrobial has never really been defined either. I mean, the categories for, uh, for, for public health uh, 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 antimicrobials are sterilants, disinfectants, and sanitizers, and those are specifically de uh, designed around their efficacy and, and what really their antimicrobial potency is. Elliot, this, in your experience, does your job change depending on whether a Democrat or a Republican is president? Does the EPA reflect uh, you know, the political leanings of, of the people in office? Um, well, that's sort of a complicated question. Um, to some extent, yes, but I think much more so in other parts of EPA. I think, I think the Office of Pesticide Program has always been sort of considered a separate entity. They're physically separate from the rest of EPA. Um, what they do has always been considered somewhat at odds from the rest of EPA because what they do is they license, you know, pesticides or poisons, you know, for people to use, where the rest of EPA supposedly is trying to limit. But um, I, I think because they have to make many decisions every day, because the issues are, are complicated, that it really doesn't matter whether there's a Republican or Democrat administration. 
In addition, um, you know, um, you know, I think politically it's sensitive or, you know, it, you don't want to be thought of as sort of soft on pesticides. So whether it is Republican or Democrat in power, administration in power, you know, I, I found that it, it really, for the most part, doesn't matter. And that's surprising, but that, 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 that's been my experience. Back to uh, product registrations. What are the annual fees to register a pesticide on the federal level and the state level? Okay, the, let me answer that. There, there's really two sets of fees. Okay. There are now registration fees that you need to put in for most emissions. You've got a new product. Uh, you've got to pay EPA a fee, basically a fee-for-service system. And that fee depends upon the extent of EPA's review. For most submissions, um, the fee would be about $4,000, which is for a new product. Mm -hmm. um, once you get registered, there are maintenance fees, and that depends on the number of products you have. Um, the fee for one a single product, I think it's 3000 and I, I think it then caps off. I, I don't know the official figure, but if you've got, you know, 50 products and you're paying 120,000. I think there may be a cap there, so that's that's basically how it's set up. So there, there's an initial fee when you apply, and then there's annual maintenance fee. What about the states? Uh, the states also have fees, and that varies from state to state. Um, for a nationally registered product, in other words, the product that you're going to sell in 50 states. Uh, the annual fee runs around uh, $10,000 per year per product. If uh, a pesticide is discontinued, so no, they're no longer manufacturing it, do you still have to pay that registration fee for a certain period of time? Uh, if the pesticide is has been distributed and is in the channels of trade, for most states, you've got to pay two-year discontinuance fee, which is the same fee that you normally pay. Um, if if you have never sold a product or you're assured that there's nothing in the channels of trade, um, you can go to most states and ask for a waiver of that fee. Of course, you take the risk that if they do find it in the state, they can take an enforcement action against you. But it's, it's a little more complicated than just you have to pay discontinuance fee for two years in every state. Uh, there, there are some subtleties to that. Elliot, if you could change one thing about the EPA antimicrobial division, what would it be? Um, I, I think the most frustrating thing um, that we deal with is the unlevel playing field and the fact that, um, you know, there'll be an historic claim and somebody wants to make the same claim, but now EPA's position has changed. Uh, they realize that they made a mistake or that, you know, they hadn't thought through how the, 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 the nuances of an issue and they tell the follow-on registrant, you can't make it, 
we don't want to compound the problem. So we won't let you make the claim, but they really don't have the ability to force, you know, the company uh, companies that currently have the claim from removing it from their label. Um, so that, you know, again, that's easier said than done to, to fix that because there are. Um, 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 Things in FIFRA that sort of protect existing registrations, uh, but that I, I believe is something that uh, is the you know to me is the most frustrating thing to have to go to a, a company and say uh, who has the same product as a competitor that you can't make the claim because EPA doesn't think the claim is right, but there's nothing going to happen against the competitor. Um, that, that would be the thing that. And it would be it's easier said than done to change that, but that would be the thing that, you know, I would like to change. I really have a two-part question, and this is really, I guess, from the consumer perspective, Elliot. How does the consumer know that what the level of risk is for using these products, so what the toxicity would be, and the efficacy? Uh, can you take us through the testing that's required on both the efficacy and the toxicity side? Okay. Well, in terms of the safety or the hazards of the product that are apparent to the consumer, EPA requires a battery of acute toxicity study, skin and eye irritation, sensitization, and then an acute oral, dermal, and inhalation study. These are all short-term studies that determine whether something is going to be irritating to your eyes, irritating to your skin, uh, whether you swallow a small amount, whether you're going to be harmed. And that, those results from those studies uh, get translated in two ways onto the product label. One, they, uh, they determine your signal word, which is either caution, warning, or danger. And two, um, they determine the precautionary statement. Um, for example, if something is severely irritating to eyes, it you know may it should say on the label you know causes severe eye irritation. Uh, if something's moderately irritating, you know causes moderate irritation. So now you could argue that you know maybe consumers don't read the cautionary language that thoroughly. Maybe there should be a color scheme or some other way to communicate that information. I think EPA has done a lot of work in trying to make labels more, you know, consumer friendly, but it, it, it's complicated to, you know, I think communicate that information. But essentially, you do acute toxicity studies and you communicate those results in two ways to consumers: the signal word and the precautionary statement. Um, and that that's what the consumer knows about the hazards. Uh, in terms of efficacy, um, if you're claiming a product is effective against a human pathogen, um, there are basically two types of claims a consumer would see. One is as a disinfectant, um, and, you know, the claims range, you know, for, you know, uh, disinfects against this bacteria, uh, 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 kills this bacteria, etc. 
and a uh, sanitizer claim, which is a uh, less rigorous claim, um, essentially um, uh, for the disinfectant uh, claim, uh, it's not a quantitative test yet, but you're killing probably on the order of 10 to the 6 microbes, um, or, or you're, you're reducing your microbe population by about 10 to the 6, whereas for a, a sanitizer, it's, it's 10 to the 3rd, so it's about 99.9%. And for sanitizer labels, you'll see, you know, kills 99.9% of a particular microorganism. Um, I, I think there's been lots of studies done in terms of you know, what the consumer understands, um, and I, I guess, you know, depending on who you speak to, they'll have their own interpretation of what sort of claims should go on the label, but what's more appealing to the consumer. But in terms of the EPA hierarchy, a disinfectant is thought to be a more potent product than a sanitizer. Joe? Yeah, I've got a question that comes up quite a bit. Maybe you can explain better for us. What is the treated article exemption? Treated article exemption is a provision in the EPA regulations that basically says if you put a pesticide, in this case a preservative, into a article, then you don't need to register the article if all you're doing is saying that you're preserving the article. For example, you put a preservative into paint. Uh, you don't need to register the paint. You can say the paint has been treated with a preservative to preserve the paint. Um, um, wood is another treated article. You can say, you know, the wood has been treated with a preservative uh, to present, you know, prevent fungal growth and termites, uh, you know, in the wood. You know, speaking speaking of paints, would you you know you had given some examples uh, earlier about you know not having a level playing field and so on and so forth. Would you say that that might be an example you know where the EPA registered you know a paint as a um, you know as a registered material as opposed to a regular paint and that that's caused confusion in the marketplace? No, I'm not aware of that. No. I'm not. I'm not really aware of that. Um, um, no, I, I wouldn't say that. Um, what about these um, paints or coatings that claim to have uh, an antimicrobial effect? You know, in other words, when when you paint this on, it will uh, stop mold growth for I don't know a certain period of time or for as long as you keep it clean. Or yeah, I mean, there there right. you're. You know, the treated article essentially says you're preserving the article. If you're saying that the article itself is active, in other words, the surface is active, then you're no longer a treated article. You're basically a pesticide product that needs to be registered. Now, I think people have played games in terms of the labeling and, you know, uh, uh, and, 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 and how they portray their claims, so they, you know, try to fit into the treated article, but, but those sorts of products need to be registered. Okay, I think we're about half time, so what we're going to do is uh, 
go to halftime. Uh, we can uh, first bring on Dr. Dieter for his comment, and then we'll go to uh, Brian McFarland. Dieter. Hi there. Hi, Dieter. Yeah, hi there. Good, uh, good day to everybody. Uh, I have a ton of questions, and I know we have a time problem over here. Yeah. Uh, Joe knows and Cliff knows that I worked for about 10 years for a large chemical company, which has developed many, many, many pesticides since the turn of last century. Anyway, um, uh, on that treated article, I, I, I teach sometimes in our courses that I teach with uh, Joe, uh, I, I, I talk about biocides. And I, my definition of a treated uh, a product exemption was basically, if you can't fool around with it, you know, you are kind of exempt. Like I bought a shower curtain, which says that it is uh, mildew resistant. And I'm pretty sure there is um, uh, uh, one of our wonderful uh, quaternary ammonium chlorides in there. And of course, I know with time that one leaches out and it's not not active anymore. But um, uh, so that is the one question uh, uh, that I have um, with 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 the registration and the exemption. And I have another question. You probably know that better than I do. I know how expensive it is to get a new product, a new pesticide on the market. I mean, it's in the millions of dollars. That's one of the reasons why they are so incredibly expensive. Are there still chemical companies, you know, the big boys, and they're the only ones who really can afford that, uh, who are registering new biocides? I know on the shelf of EPA are something like 8,000 registered pesticides, biocides, and uh, I, don't, I don't know, are they, are they still, are they trickling in or are there every year another 100 applications or 1,000 applications? Well, uh, let me answer your second question. There, there, there are very few new chemistries or new active ingredients being registered by the antimicrobial industry. Yeah, I would believe that. Uh, as you mentioned, it's just the, the economics isn't there. Um, you're, you're looking at, you know, uh, uh, um, an outlay of at least a million and probably more. Oh, oh, oh at uh, in terms of your test data. Oh, much more than that. We're looking at, you know, two to three years to develop the data, and and I'm just probably giving you know overly optimistic estimates here, and then an EPA review time of, you know, two years. So. It's, it's difficult. You got to go to you know senior management and say, uh, can you give me the resources to take a new active through the registration process? It's going to cost several million, but more importantly, it's going to take me five years before I can even sell it. So unless uh, uh, you know uh, you've got a uh, uh, a very uh, a management that's very very focused on the long term. It's difficult to get those sorts of you know money, but there there are a couple. It, it, and you're right, it, it's mainly the big companies. Um, what you'll see at times is um, uh, materials that you know have sort of inherent safety to them. 
I mean, they, they've been around the block uh, for other uses, but they, they've never been registered as pesticide additive ingredients. Some of those will show up. But uh, EPA does publish their work plan every year. And uh, I'm aware of that, yes. Yeah, and, and you know, uh, in, in terms of what I would consider new chemistries, uh, you know, maybe one or two a year will show up on the work plan. But that's what I thought. Uh, uh, but, uh, and, and, it's, and it's typically in areas where, you know, you'll, you'll have a, uh, a phase-out or a ban of a, of a, of a uh, you know, an historic active like in wood. Where you you know you had CCA being removed from the market, so obviously there's a need to replace CCA. So people were looking at new chemistries, um, um, you know, anti-fouling paints. There's a need to replace, uh, you know, some of the you know the copper products. But um, in terms of uh, you know uh, uh, the you know regular disinfectant products. Uh, for residential or industrial use, uh, uh, very, very few and far between. All right. Uh, to answer your first question, which I think is, you know, is that an example of a treated article? It is. Yes. And you're 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 protecting the uh, the um, the curtain from from you know, mildew resistant or something like that. Yeah, from from mildew from having odor. So that that to me is a, a treated article. I see. Okay. Now, if you uh, made claims that, you know, the curtain itself was, you know, uh, 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 killing pathogens and uh, public health claims, uh, EPA would consider that to be uh, probably a registered pesticide. So, but from, from the, the use you described in the type of claims, is that the treated article? All right. That, that, I'm glad uh, that I teach my students the right thing. Okay. <laughs> All right, let's move over to Brian. Brian, why don't you uh, enlighten us on insurance issues today? What are we going to talk about? Uh, today we're going to, you know, we're going to continue the seven deadly sins of buying insurance, uh, the series we've been uh, going through. And today we're going to talk about probably what is the uh, uh, the biggest mistake that most companies make, and that that is to simply buy insurance based on what the premium or what the price of that coverage is. Uh, compared to the actual coverage in it. Um, in today's marketplace, uh, you know, most companies that, that we work with uh, are looking to save money anywhere they can. And certainly insurance is one of those areas. Uh, and within the last uh, two years, there's, you know, three or four new insurance carriers that are, you know, now offering coverage to in, uh, environmental contractors and consultants, especially in the uh, indoor quality mold arena. Uh, and several of these carriers, uh, you know, as they're new, uh, you know, the, the policy forms that they have, one, haven't been tested, and, and, and you know, most agents haven't legged them because they're brand-new policies. Uh, so a, a lot of them have exclusions that may not be in some of the more traditional or, or longer policies that have been on the market. Uh, so the, the, the smart thing to do when you're, when you're shopping for insurance is, one, to get multiple quotes. Talk to your agent. Make sure that they're providing uh, you know, quotes for multiple carriers so that you can see the difference uh, between those. But make sure that the carrier or, or your agent goes through those policy forms and points out the difference between the coverages. Uh, no policy out there is the same. Uh, 
some policies, for instance, uh, a, a good example would be a lot of our uh, contractors, you know, do some testing. So a lot of our, let's say, mold remediation contractor, a lot of them will do, you know, some light assessment or some testing, and then and then we'll bring somebody in after abatement to do post-clearance testing. Um, two policies that are on the market won't cover uh, any assessment uh, on a job where they're also performing the remediation because of the conflict of interest uh, between those two things. And other policies are going to not see that, or other carriers are not going to see that as a conflict of interest so long as there's, you know, third-party post-clearance testing. So, so it's important that you understand those differences, and there's many other instances like that. Uh, you know, when, when you're going through it. So depending on what your actual workflow is and how your business is set up, that's going to determine the policy you should go with. And usually you're going to see that, you know, the cost difference between those policies is maybe a few hundred hours uh, to, to make sure that you're getting the right coverage. So today's lesson is just make sure that, you know, you, you're working with an agent that goes through those policies with you and explains the differences and, and understands the exact processes that you're using to make sure you have the the, the, the right policy for you, not necessarily the cheapest policy. Brian, thanks again for uh, some great information. Uh, let's thank our sponsors. All right. Let's start with our newest sponsor. That's going to be Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions. Uh, Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions is the leader in portable, mobile, PC-based indoor environmental monitors and reporting software. Check them out at wolfsensing.com. Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years. Learn about them at legends-enviro.com. Microband Systems, the microbial management company at microbandsystems.com. Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IEQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information available at ieconnections.com. Dryease Products, providing equipment for drying water-damaged homes and buildings. Dryease is first in drying solutions at dri-eaz.com. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop at jondon.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their products and services. Well, Elliot, I've got really a, a two-part question to ask you here. One is... Uh, texted in from a listener, and we already had one that we were planning on discussing. And the, the subject is really licensing. In your opinion, should maids and janitors who apply antimicrobials as part of their jobs, do you think they need a pesticide license? Uh, you know, that that's not an issue I've ever really focused on, but I, I don't really see why they need a pesticide license or need to be... We're heading to be a certified applicator. I don't. I don't see the need for that. Okay. I guess the second part is, and this was texted into us. A lot of duck cleaners and IEQ contractors are confused about licensing requirements. The National Air Duct Cleaners Association, in their publication, which is called Ducktails, recently published an article that stated that any duck cleaner using an EPA registered product must, and I repeat, must have a pesticide applicator license issued by their state. I thought such licenses were only required when applying restricted-use products, yet the antimicrobial products used are all general-use products. 
Why should duck cleaners and others using antimicrobials in their work have to have a pesticide application license? Well, uh, I, I don't believe that they're required by the federal registration to have a license. I mean, you're only required, the only requirement to, uh, 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 to have a product applied by a certified applicator is if EPA designates it as a restricted use pesticide. Um, you know, EPA has said that, you know, even products that say professional use only, uh, they can't enforce that. That's meaningless. Um, so uh, unless uh, EPA designates the product as restricted use, it doesn't have to be applied by a certified applicator. Now, some states, though, have imposed their own restrictions. Uh, New York is one that I'm familiar with. And so um, there, there may be other states that have said that you need to be certified by the state before you can apply product in, in a duct system. And you know, I don't know how many states I haven't tracked that they require it, but there may be more than just a few. I think there – go ahead. I'm just, uh, I want to follow up on the HVAC thing. I, you know, uh, Dr. Wow uh, mentioned that we've been teaching these classes for probably seven years now. And I believe around 2003, there was an interpretation uh, or at least some guidance issued by EPA on the use of these antimicrobial products in HVAC systems. And I'm curious if you know whether or not that was a, uh, a new uh, interpretation by EPA or whether that was a, a regulatory change? This was, are you referring to the proposed PR notice that basically said, you know, if it's not on your label, then you have to basically say it can't be used in the HVAC system? Yes. Yeah, that basically that's been debated for a number of years. And the latest I heard is that EPA is not going to go forward with that basically put that effort to rest. You mean as far as putting an additional... Under label, that's not going to be required. Okay, but they're still going to require that you have a separate category for use on duct work or... I, I think they're going to take the position that, yeah, that if your label doesn't specifically say you can use it in an HVAC system, it just says, let's say, a hard surface, that, you know, use of that product in an HVAC system is, is not an approved use. So that you'll need, you'll need to have HVAC as a use site and use directions for, you know, HVAC systems in order, you know, for, you know, for that. If it's not on the pro uh, product, then it's not allowed to be, it shouldn't be used. Uh, in an HVAC system. And I guess what you were talking about was there was thought they were going to have to actually put some kind of a label on the... Or You're going to have to put sort of a negative statement that, you know, that you can't use it or, you know, and, and the industry was recoiled at that. But, you know, that still doesn't uh, take away from the fact that, you know, if a product doesn't say you can use it in an HVAC system, it just says, you know, hard... You know, non-porous surfaces. It's 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 
it's a uh, a misuse to use it in an HVAC system. From an enforcement standpoint, I think that that would be EPA's position. So that was more of an enforcement. I think that's what the industry said is we don't, you know, if our product doesn't have HVAC system on the label, we don't have to tell people you can't use an HVAC system. Uh-huh. But if people go ahead and use it in HVAC systems, you know, that's a misuse of the product. Okay, Cliff? And, and just on that point, I mean, I, I, there are labels. I mean, Cliff's aware of this that are approved for HVAC systems. Um, the label is somewhat sort of overbearing, but I, I think for the industry, it's, it's probably better to have, you know, to, you know, you know, to have a system where you actually have products that have that use site and those use directions on it. You know, I don't have a, a real issue with it, and there are certainly products that are out there, and I think that that information uh, is good because it gives step-by-step instructions of how to do it and pretreatment and cleaning and, and so on and so forth. My only question with the whole issue was that I didn't see a difference in exposure pattern. You know, if I was going to use this product once a year on a Friday evening and they were going to have the weekend off and no one was going to be exposed to it on Monday, I don't understand how that poses a greater risk to the products that are used when it could be the same product that is used on a daily basis to clean the desks, mop the floor, clean the cafeteria, and and, and so on and so forth. I don't really see uh, a different exposure pattern. Yeah, I, I, I think... I think that from EPA's standpoint is when this issue came up, they didn't have a good handle on the risks of a product used in an HVAC system. Um, and, you know, as, as you're aware, Cliff, there were some incidents, you know, particularly in schools for misuse of products. And so I think what EPA was doing was saying, look, we need to do some risk assessment. We don't have a good handle on what the potential risks are for the use of these products in HVAC systems. And, and that's why they did what they did. Um, I, you know, I, I haven't looked at the risk assessments lately, but, you know, I, I think your conclusion that the scheme of things, you know, the risks aren't significantly greater from the use of products in HVAC systems than normal cleaning. But I think EPA, being sort of a conservative, cautious organization that is concerned about, you know, protecting the public health, had to step back and look at, you know, what are the potential risks? Do we have a good handle on them? Well, I guess I come back to you with the question, do pesticide regulators at the EPA have first of all, hands-on experience, or are they scientists, or are they bureaucrats, you know, that are regulating issues that they don't have a clue about? Well, I, I think that they clearly don't have a lot of the practical knowledge about how products are used when they start out looking at an issue. Um, and it takes a while for them to get educated, but I think when they end up doing their assessment, that they they do try to gain as much knowledge as they possibly can and to, to conduct realistic exposure and risk assessment. 
Um, I, I think that, you know, again, um, it's difficult because they don't want to make a mistake. And so they'll use sort of worst-case assumptions that may not be very realistic, um, at least to do a first-cut assessment. And so, you know, your response is going to be, that's crazy. That's not real world. No one would ever use the product like that. Um, you know, your assessment is fantasy. Um, their response is, yeah, but, you know, you know, you can always have an odd user or, um, we've got to be concerned about, you know, the worst case. And, you know, so you, you run into that sort of conflict. I think it eventually gets worked out, um, and the parties sort of meet sort of midway. Uh, you know, EPA realizes that some of their assessments are not really, you know, real world, and they try to sort of make them a little more real worldish. I don't know. Does that, does that answer your question, Cliff? It did. Joe? Yeah, I want to go back real quick um, to something you mentioned before, Elliot, as far as the registration of new products. And maybe you can help clarify this for me and the listeners. I still see a lot of new, I would say monthly, um, I'll see an ad for a new mold, antimicrobial, biocide, whatever you want to call it. Let's call it a, a disinfectant. Right. What you're telling me then is, if I understand correctly, is these are products that are using a currently registered um, chemical, let's say, but they're using it in a different formulation or in a new product, and they're just going through the registration process that way? Yeah. I mean, basically, uh, you don't have new chemistry. Uh, you've got, uh, you know, new marketing, uh, <laughs> new marketing approach. Okay. Or, uh, you know, maybe a new formulation. But even that is uh, maybe a stretch. But, yeah, it's basically the old chemistry uh, with a new spin. So let me ask, ask a follow-up then, because I'm seeing a lot of these new nanotechnology disinfectants uh, being advertised. Is, is that the same thing? Well, that's EPA. They don't like nanotech in the pesticide program. They don't uh, think they got a good handle on, on, uh, on, uh, on the risks of nanotech. I'm not aware of that. Uh, I mean, I, I know that there was an issue with EPA with a, a silver being used in a uh, in a clothes washer, I think, and uh, EPA felt kind of stung by that one. And I, ever since that, I know they've been very concerned about nanotech or nanotech products. I'm I'm not aware of uh, of you know. I haven't seen that much advertising for nanotech. But I will say that uh, in the pesticide program, and speaking of the antimicrobial division, that they they don't think they have a good handle on the risks of nanotech products, and they are very concerned. Excellent. I think what I'm seeing is probably, I don't want to say, well, let's just say um, inaccurate advertising. That Goes on all the time. Yeah, yeah, they're really not. It's not really a nanotechnology. It's just a, you know an old TiO2 product that um, they're claiming is being applied in a manner that uh, uses nanotechnology or something like that. One important point to note is EPA doesn't approve advertising. They can take enforcement against advertising. They think it's false or misleading, 
um, and so can the FTC, obviously. But EPA doesn't approve it, and you know they don't have the resources to to go after everybody that you know uh, is uh, saying false and misleading things. Well, you, you kind of led into another question I had when when they do get a report of false or misleading advertising. What's the what's the response? Well, it depends. Uh, um, you know, uh, it depends who gets it, what their workload's like, how big a priority it is. Um, it, it could it could be anything from gets put at the bottom of a pile and really never there's never any follow up action to a warning letter to cease and desist to an enforcement action, um, and it's hard to predict. Um, uh, it, it really depends on, again, what region at EPA or, or, or state gets it, how concerned they're about, uh, about the issue, um, and, and, you know, where it sits in terms of priorities of what they're working on. If you're, if you've got, you know, some really important enforcement actions that you think involve, you know, serious health concerns, then, you know, uh, uh, you may not have time to work on anything else. So, you know, um, it, it's hard to predict what exactly would happen with a particular action. But, you know, again, there's, you know, vary anywhere from just gets buried to EPA decides they've got to do something about it. Okay. Annie. Yeah. I have a question for you, Elliot, um, on disinfectants. Does the EPA have a special designation or a classification for uh, disinfectants known as botanical or all-natural? Nope. You can't say natural. Okay. Um, I'm not aware that they'll – I haven't seen anything where they've actually allowed anybody to say botanical disinfectants. I believe another division of EPA, of the pesticide program, the uh, – uh, biopesticides and Pollution Prevention, BPBD, I think you can say botanically derived for some actives. But natural natural is a, 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 a word they don't like because it imply, it, they view it as it, it's an implied safety plan. You know, in fact, the only, the, only, uh, the only term that you can use these days is organic. It comes from the USDA National Organic Program. And if you, you are in compliance with the National Organic Program, you can put a, the NOP logo on your label, say, you know, applies to the National Organic Program, and you can use the, you're familiar maybe with the OMRI, the Organic Materials Research Institute, you can right. use their logo. Mm -hmm. So those are the only sort of green claims that are currently allowed on products. All right. Uh, Elliot, we've kind of run out of time. What we do now is we go to what we call our um, roundup at the end. So everyone's going to uh, just hang on and, and kind of ask you one more question. We're going to sum everything up, and uh, we'll, we'll be done here. So go ahead, Chris.
Okay, I think we're going to go Dieter, Joe, Annie, and then Cliff. So, Dieter, uh, question or comment? Well, quick comment. I learned something again. I didn't know anything about the natural uh, organic program. And um, the, the, the other thing that, that, that I always um, question, or at least raise an eyebrow, you know, you know I worked in toxicological laboratories, for better or for worse. And yes, we did kill animals. Um, that is not a nice thing to do, but and you never should do that unless you get good data from it. But I'm somewhat weary when I see a natural uh, product that says it, not tested on animals. And I said, okay, now your daughter is going to be the animal and she tests <laughs> <laughs> if, if she gets harassed, or maybe the stuff isn't all that good as we thought it would be. It's kind of interesting. I mean, if it's not tested on animals, did the chemist try that out on his skin and see whether it was, you know, corrosive or whatever? No, no. I mean, I, there, there are in vitro studies now. And they're widely I, I know. I can kill a couple of flies Yes, and I do an AIMS test. I know. Well, that 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 yeah that that is someday yeah you know, that's from mutagenicity, but right. No, they they, uh, they they haven't really been accepted for pesticide products. So you know, in terms of eye and skin irritation, I believe that uh, you're still doing animal testing. Yes, but, I, I I know that. Yes, for cosmetic products these days, uh, I don't think you have. I'm not aware of very, very many cosmetic products or companies that will do animal testing yeah. these days, mainly because they're scared about uh, the, the bad uh, publicity. Yeah. So. I mean, hey, I feel terribly sorry for those poor little animals, whether it's a mouse or a rat or a guinea pig. There's no question about that. And you shouldn't kill an animal unless you get good information and publish that information. If you don't do that, I don't think you have the right to kill an animal. Yeah, I mean, I, th I would agree that, you yeah. know, that, that the, the only justification for animal testing is that you, you, you make the determination that you need to do animal testing in order to get the best data. But right. you have concerns about in vitro studies and that the purpose of, that, of those studies are to really protect users, humans, uh, from uh, right. untoward products. And if you can't make that justification, then you shouldn't do animal testing. That's right. And I'm sure that a lot of people who are against animal testing, I don't think they want to have cute little mice around their house. I really don't think so. Yeah, that's, uh, yeah. oh, no, no, I don't want that mouse over here. I kill that mouse. <laughs> I'm sure you could have a whole two-hour session on IEQ radio about animal testing one of these. Well, we, we may want to do exactly that. Absolutely. <laughs> All right. Okay, Joe. The, um Cliff, do you want to take the text question I see here, or do you want me to? Um, you can take it if you want. All right, let me take that, and then I've got one one other quick one. Go ahead. Um, we've got a guest text question, Elliot. What limits me from applying a uh, basically pancrete, an EPA-registered product, to the air supply portion of air handlers? And it's a 5 to 10% antimony trioxide. Uh, well, you'd have to look at the label and see what uses were on the label. Yeah. I mean, uh, it, it, I can't answer that question. 
uh, without knowledge of what particular product this, this person's talking about. Yeah, it's V570 pancreas, but even then, I, I can't have to look. I, I, uh, again, um, um, labels, you know, have used instructions, and, I, and EPA's position is you're really not supposed to deviate very far from those use instructions in terms of how and where you can apply a product. So would I be correct in saying that if this particular product says it's to be used to uh, fix drain pans and it does not say on the label that it can be applied to the air supply portion of the air handler, they should not do that? Yeah. Okay. Now, there are labels that have, you know, kind of fuzzy language, and there's you can sort of interpret how far you can go. But without, you know, without seeing a specific label and looking at the situation, it's, you know, you really, it, it, it would be, uh, 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 it, it really isn't preferable to, to give advice or, how you can use a product. Understood. I had a real quick one, too. Um, Oftentimes we get questions about people who are doing uh, mold remediation or water damage restoration, and they're using antimicrobials, and they recognize, you know, there's an EPA FIFRA regulation, and the states enforce um, enforce the licensing, and they have to check with their state agency. And most of the time we tell them, check with the State Department of Agriculture. Are there other state agencies they should be checking with as well as the State Department of Agriculture? Uh, I think that'll depend upon the state. And again, what I would, in that case, call up the, 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 the State Department of Ag or whatever department regulates pesticides and say, you know, is, is there anybody else in the state who we need to contact? There you go. Excellent. Thank you. Thanks for joining us, too, Elliot. Sure. My pleasure. Go ahead, Annie. Okay. Elliot, we touched upon a lot of topics today, but I just have this question. In what areas do you consider the APA to having overreached into? Oh, well, that's not easy. Yes. I I think that, um, again, this kind of an arcane or... Uh, uh, area. Um, there's dual jurisdiction or dual regulation um, between EPA and FDA on some products. Um, these are things used, let's say, in making food contact materials, uh, um, uh, antimicrobials put into packaging for food packaging. Uh, and I'm probably using food processing plants. But that would be actually well, people aren't really aware of this, but but antimicrobials used in medical devices are for the most part regulated both by EPA and FDA. And I don't see any reason why you need two regulatory agencies that you know uh, uh, basically you know do the same types of reviews and assessments to, uh, to both regulate uh, a product. So if I'm using a, uh, uh, an antimicrobial 
uh, in a medical device, um, I don't see why EPA needs to handle that. I mean, it's, I think FDA can, can protect the public by, by under their regulation. Um, um, I mean, I had a situation, I was just, you know, uh, where uh, this was a, a sterilant used for uh, medical devices that are, are used on animals. Um, FDA regulates this and has been approving the company's product for years. EPA said, we need to do it too. And so even though the company had numerous approvals from FDA, they also had to go through EPA, which didn't make any sense. Mm -hmm. So I think, I think they overreach in that area. I think they also overreach um, some of the label reviewers will write labels that reflect their personalities and, and basically the way they would like to write the label rather than the company that's marketing it. Now, clearly if the label is false or misleading or doesn't state, you know, some of the basic things that it should, I don't, I don't have an issue with that. But when you have some of the label reviewers basically rewrite the label and sort of personalize it in terms of, you know, how they would write a label, I think that goes too far. And uh, uh, um, so that's, that's the second area. And then I, I think, you know, um, again, in terms of, of, of some of these claims, you know, these safety-type claims and green-type claims where things may be changing, um, you know, EPA is basically taking the position um, that, you know, that anything that says the product is environmentally preferable or any claim that can be construed as, you know, um, as, you know, implying the product has a, has a certain profile that, uh, that may be appealing to consumers is false and misleading. And, and that, to me, is junk. I mean, I, I think EPA should basically pull back and let folks go out there and, and, and make claims on their labels that are, that are true. And, you know, if, if another company challenges them, let, let folks, you know, let both of them go to court and, and fight it out. I mean, I heard, just to give you one example, I, 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 and, and this is almost ridiculous, there was a company that put on their website this was a bare repellent product, the trajectory of their product versus competitive product. They got all this information from, from EPA-approved labels. And basically the argument was, our product has a better trajectory than other products. They put it on their website. EPA said, you can't do that. This is false and misleading. You can only compare your product to other, to basically compare your product or this product is yours, other products you have, you can't, com can't make a comparative efficacy type claim on your, on, your, uh, on, your, um, on your website. And I don't know where that stood. To me, that was kind of absurd and, and really sort of a free speech issue, too. But I think EPA sort of overstepped in that area. Okay. Thanks a lot, Elliot. I guess, um, first of all, um, Every day we, we hear on the news that there's a school, there's some 
institution where people are dying from MRSA, the staph, uh, you know, methicillin uh, resistant staph infections. And it seems like the EPA is, well, you know, while this is going on, they're obsessed with mold and how mold is remediated and how mold is cleaned up and, and so on and so forth. And when you look at the news, you don't hear about people dying from mold uh, on, on a daily basis. You know, it seems to me that perhaps the EPA should be worrying about MRSA and things that are more significant and kind of be less involved with mold. So I don't know, could you comment on that statement? Are they afraid of mold? I, 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 I don't know if that's highly accurate. I, I mean, I again, I, I, I think it you need to ask someone from EPA in terms of how much resources they devote to issues. I, mean, I think they're concerned about MRSA. Um, I, I don't know what they really, you know, how much they can do about it. Um, you know, they're, they approve products that have MRSA claims. I mean, they're, you know, CDC and other organizations that are much more involved daily with infection control would be folks to ask. Um, um, I mean, I think, you know, EPA would be concerned that, you know, products are effective. They do have a, you know, a testing program uh, to ensure that, you know, that, that products um, are working as they claim they are. But, but in review of some new product labels, I guess products that are in the pipeline, products that are already out there, the EPA is real specific in how you should clean up mold. They tell you exactly how to do it and where to right. look for yeah, information. I think they were concerned about, uh, you know, that, that folks uh, get to the root of the problem in terms of, you know, leaks and not just apply products without solving you know, what, what's causing the mold. But, um, you know, maybe that's another area where they overreached in terms of, all, you know, everything they made you put on the label. I, again, Cliff, I, 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 don't, I don't think it's correct. To, I don't think that they're obsessed with mold. I think when the mold issue came up and they, they wanted to sort of get it right in terms of how they did it, and maybe they overstepped in terms of... Um, 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 you know, what they required on labels. But I, I don't think they sit around and have daily 8 o'clock meetings about what we can do about mold. I hear you. I hear you. Well, I think there, there are two things that we always like to do at the end of the show with our guest, Elliot. First of all, you know, we want to thank you. Uh, we also want to ask you, are there any questions that we didn't ask or, you know, anything that you'd like to, you know, correct or, you know, change? That you said. No, I mean, I, I think I think that you know the, that this is an area that's very highly regulated. Um, that's always going to have tension between you know the the feds that and the state folks that, that regulate and companies that want to promote their product. Um, you know, part of the problem is that there are folks out there that you know. Uh, uh, you know, we're pushing the envelope a little too far. Um, part of the problem, as we talked before, is that, you know, that, that, you know, that the regulators are not as knowledgeable about certain issues as maybe they should be. Um, and certain regulators have biases uh, clearly about this industry. Um, but it's, it's, 
it's just, you know, it's got to realize that it's, uh, you know, not only heavily regulated, but there's always going to be continuing tension between regulators and industry. And that neither side, I think, is 100% correct in their views. And that, you know, the, the, uh, uh, the, the folks that are uh, the most successful in, in navigating the regulatory arena are the ones who I think are realistic uh, in terms of uh, what they can expect to get and are realistic in terms of, uh, of uh, what, uh, the, you know, of where EPA is coming from. And that if, you're, if you tend to be ideological in this arena, you're going to end up uh, being very frustrated and unhappy. You know, I, I felt the tension, and I know postal workers have gone postal, and I'm just not going to go antimicrobial on you. <laughs> uh, how can our listeners get in touch with you or learn more about the firm of Lewis and Harrison? Uh, they can uh, call us at 202-393-3903 or just email me at eharrison at lewisharrison.com. Okay. All right. Before we sign off, I'd like to thank my co-host, Radio Joe Hughes, the wingman, Chris Boisel, our guest host, Environmental Ann, Ann Kilalecki, and our technical director, Dr. Dieter Weil. But most importantly, you, our growing group of loyal listeners, please come back and join us next Friday at noon for the next broadcast of IAQ Radio. has been another IAQ Radio production.